From the garden level of Harvard Medical School's historic Vanderbilt Hall in Boston, this is Think Research, a podcast that discusses the stories behind medical research. I'm Abby, your host. Think Research is brought to you by Harvard Catalyst, Harvard University's Clinical and Translational Science Center. In our first episode with Dr. Jonathan Beckwith, we learned about the important intersection of scientific passion and being cautious of political and social implications. When Beckwith began to study gene replication and isolation at home and abroad, Oppenheimer, Vietnam, the Cuban Missile Crisis, and other events remained in the back of his mind. He had grown wary of genetic engineering and the consequences, and so with the bigger political picture in mind, He committed himself to studying genetics to better understand any future and potentially dangerous implications. Basically what we were concerned about, and it's not, we weren't the first people to talk about the possibility, but this was well before there were really any practical ways that that might happen, uh, was genetic engineering of, of people. And also at that time, someone discovered this article in a military journal that talked about using warfare in which you made viruses that would attack people. So there was a a lot of concern that biology could be used in in destructive ways, and particularly with the ability to to pull out genes that, that could do one specific thing. Those were the talking points that we made in our press conference and in interviews with with newspapers. And I think it was partly on the basis of feeling that if there was some nefarious way of using science, it would be used, and that this is one of the possible ways. I mean, it took a while, actually, for uh, these kinds of things to be perfected, but within um, six years of our discovery, uh, a a new technique developed that made it even much easier. And again, the, the issues came up, definitely came up there. And there were public concerns about it, too. How did you accidentally get there? And what did that mean for your lab? Mm-hmm. Like, what, what was actually the science you started to do in your lab? Mm-hmm. Well, it, this actually started um, in Paris when I was working there. Uh, and I was working in the lab with another American scientist. And... I was using some of the techniques that Francois Jacob and his laboratory discovered where they they found um, that they could move these genes for the beta-galactosidase, for these lactose genes. They could move them to different positions in the chromosome. And I took that technique and tried to use it to lead to some understanding of how a chromosome of a bacterial cell is replicated. And that was by looking at how these genes worked when they were different parts of the chromosome. Um, But what came out of it was not that at all, but rather uh, that I noticed that some of the uh, lactose genes that were moved to a different position were right next to a site on the bacterial chromosome where... Uh, certain a certain virus inserted into that chromosome, so you now I now had created a a, a bacterial chromosome which had the lactose genes right next to this virus, and 
the person who was working in the same lab was an expert on that virus. And so we both decided, well, maybe uh, if we induce the virus to come out of the chromosome, which was something that was already known, it will take those genes with it. And then we'll have the genes in the virus, but in this small piece of DNA. Now, this was not the isolation of the pure gene that I have talked about. But when I came back to Harvard and started my work with these, these uh, systems I've been working with, I isolated a strain in which the lactose genes were inserted next to the place where another virus inserts. So we were able to get the lactose genes onto that virus also. So we now had the two viruses, uh, each one carrying lactose genes, but they were somewhat different viruses. And one of the um, people we were collaborating with this had the idea of taking those two viruses, which were DNA viruses, separating the strands of the DNA, and then causing them to go together in such a way that the only parts that would come together would be the lactose genes. And they'd be the two strands of the DNA of the lactose genes. And we did it. We chewed up the rest of the DNA, which was uh, only single strands. And the, this double-stranded DNA, which was the lactose genes, remained pure and separated from all the rest of everything else. So it all started with a, an idea to look at DNA replication and only happened uh, not because we pursued getting these two viruses carrying the, the lactose genes, but we were doing that for other reasons. Then all of a sudden it hit me that we could take those two and put them together in such a way that we'd generate the lactose genes. I can't even recapture what we were thinking would be done with it but uh, when we started, but once we'd started thinking about it, we then fell into this mode of, uh, well, what's going to be done with it once it's, once people start using mm -hmm. it? And did that discovery lead to the work your lab did, or, or was it very central to the work your lab was doing moving forward? And if so, no. No. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, we played with those genes and tried to get um, them working in, by themselves in, in the mm -hmm. test tube. And it was, since I hadn't really developed a good, strong biochemistry background, I wasn't the person who was going to be able to do that. So what was the work your lab was did and kind of has done until, until it closed? I'm sure there's a lot of variability in what you were doing, but what are the major things that were going on? Well, we, we did some more in regulation uh, uh, on this these lactose genes, and we actually discovered something that showed that uh, Jacob and Minot were wrong about one particular thing about their lactose genes. Mm -hmm. And a lot of other scientists like this because, because I think they like to see that the, strong, the, you know, the, <laughs> the successful strong have fallen yeah. or something. <laughs> but it was important enough. It was also we discovered the first mutants in the what's called the promoter for the genes, what starts the gene being expressed. Uh, and that located it, uh, which hadn't been 
possible before, and that was that was one of the things that that countered what um, Jacob and Minot had, had said. And then spending several years doing this kind of work finally came to a point where I didn't see where we were going with it, and inspired by a, a researcher professor in our department, I got involved in a very different project, which was to, again, using genetic approaches to try to understand how bacterial cells are able to secrete proteins um, out of the cell into the medium or into a compartment that's outside the, the cytoplasm of the cells. So we started to do genetics work to try to understand that. First, uh, we discovered that there were signals in these proteins that are exported that told the cell these are proteins to go through the membrane and get out of the cell. And then we discovered components of the machinery that would recognize that those signals in the proteins, grab them and, and send them through their membranes into the medium or, or as I said, into the outside compartment of the cell. So that was something we um, continued for quite a few years sequentially discovering the components of the of this apparatus that was able to bring proteins out of cells. All the way along, I have to say that uh, the lactose genes were part of our approach because the enzyme beta-galactosidase has a very sensitive assay. It's very easy to assay. There's a, a colorimetric compound you can use, and if you put it in a tube with the beta-galactosidase, it turns yellow, and you can easily measure how much activity there is of that, that enzyme. Other than its importance in understanding how genes are regulated that Jacob and Minot showed, uh, we were now using it as a tool to, to study other problems. One of the things that we, for the most part, innovated was to, to fuse beta-galactosidase to other proteins and use it as a signal for those other proteins. And in that way, we could find out a lot about what happens to um, proteins when they're attached to another protein. If you attach them to a protein that's exported from the cell, will it go out with, with the uh, beta-galactosidase attached to it? That's allowed us to do a lot of work ever since and got us into other issues that we didn't expect to get into. We were not only interested in how proteins get into or, th or get through membranes, and outside the cytoplasm of the cells. We were also interested what the mechanism is that, uh, that allows certain proteins to be embedded in the membranes, that they are, the proteins are made inside the cell, but instead of going out of the cell, they get embedded in the, the cytoplasmic membrane that surrounds the cell. And we found that taking certain proteins and attaching them to beta-galactosidase, we could actually tell a lot about where the different parts of the protein were located in the membrane. And this is what led to basically the very last project, major project we pursued. So we found we could attach beta-galactosidase to a membrane protein in such a way that it got outside the cytoplasmic membrane. It was no longer beta-galactosidase, which was normally inside the cell, was now moved out of the cell um, and was attached to the membrane because it was attached to a membrane protein. 
but membrane proteins are in the membrane. Parts of those proteins are sticking outside the membrane, outside the cell, and other parts of it are facing inside the cell. So if you fuse beta-galactosidase to the ones that are inside the cell, they'll stay inside the cell. But if you fuse them to parts that are outside the cell, they'll be outside the cell or outside the cytoplasm. And what we found was, and didn't understand at first, was when the beta-galactosidase was attached to part of the protein that was facing inside of the cell, it was still active in the cytoplasm, and it could cause the cell to use lactose for its, for its food. Um, but when you put beta-galactosidase in, fused it to a part of the protein that was facing outside the cell, it was inactive. And we didn't understand that at all. The protein was there, but it wasn't, it wasn't active. We decided to try to understand why, why it's inactive when it's outside the cell. So we had beta-galactosidase outside the cell, so um, cells weren't able to grow on lactose as a source of carbon, as a source of food. So if you um, put them on, in some media that had lactose as the only sugar available to them, the ones that had beta-galactosidase stuck outside the cell could just couldn't grow at all. They were lactose minus. The idea was that uh, we had was a genetic idea again, where we went to look for why it was inactive by looking for mutants that made it active. What what thing did you have to change in the cell to allow the beta-galactosidase to become active? Um, and I gave this project to a graduate student, and she selected, so you select very easily for growth on lactose. If it can't grow, there's nothing in the media or in, in the agar media that we're growing them all. But if you, if you get mutants that do allow it to be active, then they'll grow up as lactose positive. Um, so she isolated four mutants she mapped them on the bacterial chromosome, and they were all mapped in the same place. Um, and that stopped there. <laughs> um, we, we had no idea how to figure out what, what gene they were affecting. Now, this was at a time when people were starting to do sequencing of the bacterial genome, um, but it, it just started. And so we really had to give it up because we had no way of defining what the, the gene was. We didn't have a, a good idea for it. About four years later, I had a postdoc who came to the lab and was looking for a project. And I said, this looks really interesting. I have no idea what it's doing. Um, and you're going to be risking something if you pursue this project um, because it, we just made it go nowhere. Uh, and this postdoc happened to be a person who liked risks a lot. He, he did in his life, he did a lot of very dangerous hiking <laughs> trips and, and um, even went down uh, cannibal regions of New Guinea, or supposedly cannibal regions, and other things. Anyway, so he took the project. And what we discovered was that people was at the University of Wisconsin were starting to sequence the bacterial genome. And so this postdoc in my lab, Jim Bardwell, contacted the group in Madison, Wisconsin that was doing the sequencing of the genome 
and he discovered to our luck that the region they had started sequencing was just the region where this unknown gene was. And so he sequenced it, and it showed up something very, uh, made things pretty quickly understandable. And that is the gene that these mutations were, were in was a gene that looked like a protein called thi a thyroidoxin. And thyroidoxins are involved in the interaction with um, disulfide bonds. Uh, they're reducing disulfide bonds. So we realized from that that maybe this protein is being a thyroidoxin. Maybe this particular thyroidoxin doesn't destroy disulfide bonds in proteins. It actually makes disulfide bonds. And that would explain why beta-galactosidase was inactive when it was outside in that region of the, of the cell, in the, outside the cytoplasm. So then it was very easy to do studies to see whether this, to purify this protein and then to ask whether it would, it would make disulfide bonds in proteins. Mm -hmm. That is, disulfide bonds are bonds that join the sulfur bonds of two cysteines in a protein and are very important for certain classes of proteins for their structure and stability and for their folding. And very quickly then, once we'd seen this, this gene, we immediately realized that this must be the, the explanation, that it was we, dis, we had discovered the system for making disulfide bonds in proteins, which were not known at that point in bacteria or in, in eukaryotic cells. And not shortly after our, our studies, uh, a couple of laboratories uh, followed up and, and did stuff with eukaryotic cells and found the system for disulfide bond formation. Because actually, most people thought at the time that you only needed air oxygen to make disulfide bonds in proteins. And they didn't think that you needed active enzymes to promote this disulfide bond formation. So we've worked with that system for many years. And other people recognized, and, and we began to recognize, that one of the biggest contributors to the uh, stability of proteins involved in bacterial virulence, bacteria that are pathogens and, and cause disease, is disulfide bonds in proteins. Like toxins that bacteria make have disulfide bonds in them, um, uh, all sorts of uh, flagella, flagella that cause the bacteria to move have disulfide bonds in them. That meant that if you Think about it, once you knock out this protein that makes disulfide bonds in the cell, you're not just knocking out one protein, you're knocking a whole bunch of proteins out because they no longer have their disulfide mm -hmm. bonds because you've knocked out the system for making them and toxins now are no longer active and all the other kinds of virulence factors. This was really pointed out in depth by uh, collaborators we've had in, in Australia who published a paper summarizing all that and saying that uh, this system would be a great system for antibiotic development, which is basically what we have tried to do for the last few years. Next time on Think Research, we learn how Dr. Beckwith brought his passion for political activism in science to his teaching at Harvard Medical School for future generations. 
Harvard Catalyst Think Research is supported by NCATS, the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences. Subscribe to Think Research on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. To find out more about our podcast or suggest topics for future episodes, visit our website, www.catalyst.harvard.edu slash thinkresearch. Thank you.